All right, well, let me pray before we get started, and uh, we'll just pray for God's guidance as we go through this next passage. Father, I just pray that in this time, uh, ultimately, that you'll speak, that through uh, me, you'll just use me as a vessel. Father, if there's things that that I've said or, or plan to say that wouldn't be of you or that wouldn't be edify, edifying, Father, I, I would pray that you would just um, uh, work through that and work, work, work beyond that. I pray, God, that you would just... Uh, guide us in this time. I pray that you'd speak to us through your word, and um, Father, do what only you can do. And thank you so much that we have this opportunity. Thank you that you love us enough, that you sent your son, that you gave us the gospel, that we might believe, and and that we might uh, uh, be brought back into a relationship with you. Father, I just pray that you'll you'll continue to work and continue to do what only you can do. And so all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going back into the book of John, John chapter 3, and we've been, been here for a few weeks now and, and been looking at the gospel, and, and ultimately we come out of this passage tonight where John moves us from introducing the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem and moves us back to a testimony of John the Baptist, but never does he remove the focus from Jesus or, or in any way uh, does, does he ever stop exalting Jesus? John, the, the Apostle John, as he wrote this book, his intention was always to, to exalt Jesus and bring the truth of the gospel forward so that people could become believers. And, and so he's never stopped doing that, even as he begins to focus on other people. Jesus is the focus or the focal point of this, of this entire book. And, and so <clears throat> as we read this passage, I, I want us to think not only about what we see happening with John, but, but, but also about the fact that what John came to do was not exalt himself, but he came to exalt Jesus. As we read this passage, think, think back on the things that we've learned about John and, and, and what his mission was all about. It, it, as I said, he never tried to exalt himself. It, ultimately, he was, he was all about doing what was necessary to see people come to come to repentance and come to faith. Uh, and, and ultimately, he had this huge, uh, this huge ministry that, in today's terms, would probably be looked at as, as the same as a megachurch. And he had this huge ministry that, that people uh, from all over the region of Judea would come and see him, and they would want to hear him preach. And, and, and so, as, as they came to see that, and as they came to experience that, John the Baptist never once lifted himself up or, 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 or in any way tried to say that this was his work or his message, but ultimately a message that he'd been sent to share. And, and he remained humble and submissive before God. And as you'll see again in our passage tonight, that, that, that remains true of John. And, and, the, and the truest secret of John's success was not the numbers that followed him, but that God was at work in him and through him. And so you see, as we come straight out of this passage where Jesus explains to Nicodemus that God regenerates people, that, that God gives eternal life, he justifies them, calls them righteous as they believe, and that, they, that, that that change affects a change in them that is obvious in the way they act, we're, we're, we're presented then with the final words of a man, the, the final testimony of a man who in many ways could have claimed the victory for himself, but constantly called him, called people to look back to Jesus. You see, what it is, and what I'm, what I'm saying is ultimately that what we see is we see Jesus present the gospel at the beginning of John chapter 3, and then we begin to see an, an illustration of the gospel at work in a man's life. 
You see, we see John, who has been regenerated, who has been converted, who has been justified, who has been made alive, and is then put on mission by God, we begin to see how that gospel takes effect in a person's life and moves them to become obedient and become servants of God. And so anyway, let's go ahead and go to the passage. We'll take a look at the passage and, and just move on from there. We'll start in verse 22, John chapter 3, verse 22, and I'll read through verse 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, I've got to stop right there because I want to make a comment about this. I want you to notice what it says Jesus was doing. After they left out of, out of, the, out, out of Jerusalem, they went out into the Judean countryside, and it says he spent some time with his disciples. And he, he ultimately... I think that while this is not the main point of my message, I think that it's something that we need to stop and think about. So often we overlook the fact that what happened in the lives of Christ's disciples was a process because he spent time with them. So often we look back at Peter, John, Andrew, James, and, and we think about what happened in their lives and, and in Paul's life, and we think, we, we look back through the snapshots that were given in Scripture, and we think, man, they just became that. It was instantaneous, but, but ultimately, that's not exactly what happened. Paul, he, he underwent a drastic change in his life. On the road to Damascus, he, he's blinded by a bright light. He hears Jesus speak, and then he goes, and he goes to, he, he's told to go to this place and stay there for a time, and Ananias is sent by God to, to come and speak to him. Something as scales fall off of his eyes, and he begins up, and the scriptures tell us that immediately he began to preach the gospel. And so there was a drastic change that happened in his life, immediate change that happened in his life. But even Paul, as he, as he stood before uh, uh, King Agrippa and gave his testimony of his transition, even Paul admits that he had to be taught, he had to be shown, he had to be uh, uh, discipled, in a sense, by, by Jesus to come to this place. He says, this is what he says, we all fell to the ground, that's in response to the bright light, and he goes on to say, this is Acts Chapter 26, verse 14 through 16, he says, We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me. And what I will show you. And so even Paul, and, and beyond that, even Paul is, is admitting that, that he's not standing on his own. He's not teaching his own doctrine. He's not come up with this plan on his own. But he's been taught it by Jesus himself and, and shown the things that he's teaching by Jesus himself. Even the, the, the great apostle Paul was discipled and taught by the Lord. On the other hand, you, you look at Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew, you know, all the twelve. And, and they were taught more in a, in, in a sense of a process, in a long-term process. They, they ministered with Christ for, for three years. And there were times that he sent them out. There were times that he sent them to go. But there were also times that he said, and, and how many times did he say, Oh, you have little faith. Because they were always being taught. They were always being discipled. They were always being grown. And, and ultimately, even, even after his ascension, they were told to wait until the Holy Spirit came on them in fullness and, and gave them power to be the witnesses that they were called to be. 
we, we overlook how important this is in our lives. We, we overlook the, the importance of, of learning from Scripture. We, we've reduced discipleship to learning about how to spend money, how to be good parents, how to, how, how, how to, how to be a, a, a good employee. That not that these things are bad, but all the time forgetting that it's God's instruction and God's teaching and transformation in our life and, 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 and time in His Scripture and the doctrine and the knowledge of who God is and what He's done that will truly bring us true spiritual growth that will then build upon to be able to learn to do what we need to do with money so that it will make us good parents so that we automatically respond with the good works of faith in our Savior. And like I said, this is not meant to be the main point of my message. But I want to challenge each of you, I want to challenge each person that hears me say this to spend time with their Savior. To spend time reading and studying His Word, seeking to understand the truth. Not, not, not just so you can say you've got it, but so that the time spent with Him prepares you to be who you've been created to be. And, and, and no, this isn't the main point of my message, but it, it's something that we need to do. What I really want you to take from this message, if that's not enough, what I really want you to take from this message and this passage of Scripture is that the right thing to do in all cases is exalt Jesus. Now, we've been working diligently towards stepping out into the public eye as we, as we start this church. And, and um, we've, we've been, uh, as of late, the, the mission has become about putting on this Easter egg hunt and getting out and doing this Easter egg hunt and, and just stepping out into the public eye. And along with that has come all kinds of work. And maybe you've not seen it all. Maybe you've not realized all that's gone on. But there's been a lot of things happening behind the scenes, getting this prepared, getting this, this group prepared for, for what's going to happen. And so ultimately, as we step out into that, as we step out into that, let, let me say this. The mission should not be about hiding eggs. The mission should be about exalting Jesus. If any way I've ever let on or, or given you some idea that we're going to have this community event all about hiding Easter eggs, forgive me. Because I've led you incorrectly. I've led you in error. If that's what you've, what you've taken from this. May it never be said about us, about the way that we were in the habit of stealing God's glory because ultimately if we go out and we promote ourselves as a church and we set ourselves up as these great people but never once bring glory or exalt our Lord and Savior, we have stolen His glory. We have stepped in the way and said, we're good people. Look at what we can do for you. Look at what we're doing for you. And never once give credit to our Savior. I believe we've failed. I believe we've sinned against Him. No matter what happens this week, no matter how many people show up, no matter how many, how many people come to look at Easter eggs, the glory, the results, they all belong to God. And so ultimately, our intent should not be to go and hide Easter eggs. 
Our intent should be to go and hide Easter eggs so that we can bring glory to Jesus. So that people can come to know Jesus. Look back at the passage with me. We need to, we need to keep, uh, keep moving forward. And, and, and what I really want you to see in this message is that it's about exalting Jesus. Let me just start back at verse 22 to give you the context again. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, I just want you to think about this encapsulated part of this passage. Ultimately, what we see happening is Jesus has gone out into the Judean countryside. He's begun to minister, and, and his ministry is having success, and people are coming to him and hearing him teach and hearing him baptize. And so we have this other Jew that comes along and begins to challenge John the Baptist's disciples as he's also ministering, as he's also baptizing, calling people to repentance. He, he's doing this work, and, and this Jew comes along and begins to speak to his disciples about the, the, the about ceremonial cleansing or ceremonial washing and this causes a conflict and causes a problem with his disciples now we're not given the direct disagreement between the jew and the disciples of john the baptist we don't know the exact details of what happened but what's interesting to me is that instead of continuing to deal with this jew or coming to john and talking about this jew and his view of ceremonial washing they come to John the Baptist and they say, Rabbi, you remember that guy you talked about? He's over there baptizing and everyone is going to him. You see, their conflict with this Jew turns quickly to a problem with the, with the ministry of Jesus and, and almost an envy of the ministry and a success of Jesus Christ in his ministry. So, so that sets up what John is going to say. Now listen to what John has to say. We'll come back to that in just a minute. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete he must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now, I want you to think about this. So we've got, what we've got is we've got this passage set up. We, we, we see that John the Baptist and his disciples are, are out ministering. Jesus has come out into the countryside, and he is ministering and baptizing. Ultimately, in chapter 4, you can see that it wasn't Jesus that baptized. 
but his disciples. That's probably irrelevant for us at this point. But, but ultimately, so Jesus is out and doing this work, and people are coming to him, and they're, they're, they're coming in flocks. And, and as the, the disciples of John the Baptist put it, everyone is going to them. Now, it's obvious that John the Baptist and, and people are still coming to him and hearing him teach and preach. He's still in the process of doing his ministry. But, but these disciples have this view that something is near the end because everyone is going to Jesus. Something's happening to our ministry. And, and so, in a sense, you hear their worry, you hear their, you hear their envy, you, you, you hear a resentment. And if it's not a resentment, it's at least a concern in, in, in the success of what Jesus is doing and, and what John the Baptist's disciples are saying. And so I, I think there's probably, probably more, but, but at least a couple of different reasons that they could be having this problem. You know, their response to, to, the, Jew, to the Jew and the conflict that they had with the Jew, their response could have been brought on by the selfish perspective that, that if Jesus and his disciples were having too much success, they would no, have, no, no longer have a part to play in a successful ministry. If it, it, it could have been driven by a selfish motivation that, that our ministry is the best ministry, our ministry is the only ministry, this is the place that needs to succeed. I had heard a pastor once, maybe, maybe a year or two ago, uh, speak about this in a sermon, that one of his greatest concerns was that the apparent success of his church would end on his watch. And that, that he would do anything he could to not see that happen. And while in the midst of the context, I, I understood, I think, what he was saying. But on the other side of that, there's some danger there. Because if, if you're measuring completely the success of your ministry by the numbers of the people that you are dealing with, then you're dealing with an external idea of success. And, and so as these disciples saw it happening, and possibly even this pastor I'm referring to saw it happening, if they see a decline in their numbers, they suddenly feel they're not being successful. You know, I was challenged with this early on, and, and I have been convicted with it again this week, that ultimately it doesn't matter how long this church lasts. I, this, this is one of the first things that I was challenged with by another church planter. It doesn't matter how long this church lasts. It doesn't matter if we grow to be 200. It doesn't matter if we ever fill this room and move out into our own property. Now, I'll tell you that there's a part of me that struggles with that. There's a part of me that struggles with the idea of success and numbers. There's a part of me that looks and feels like it, we won't be doing it. We won't be succeeding. We won't be, we, it won't be coming together and God won't be working if we don't grow and get big. There's a part of me that deals with that and struggles with it. And ultimately, I want to repent of that right now. Ultimately, I want you to know that that is, that, that is ultimately not my heart's desire, but it is a struggle that happens within me to, to, to build and affirm myself, you know, as a selfish perspective. But this challenge came to me, and I was reminded of it again this week as, as I began to put this passage together or put this message together. I was convicted of this because it doesn't matter if we ever grow and fill this room or not. It doesn't matter if we, if we ever end up in our own property or not. It doesn't matter if in a year this church falls apart because... Or, or, or stops meeting because we've decided that's what God wanted. 
What matters most is that every day that we exist as a church, that we don't exalt ourselves, but that we look to exalt Jesus in all that we do, in every word that we say, in every part of our life. You see, because it's not about the success of numbers. It's about the success of God's work in the world. And this kind of ties in also with, 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 with what follows. Their response may have also been, maybe it was selfishly motivated in their ministry success. Maybe it was selfishly motivated in what they saw happening. But their response could have also been brought by, by the loyalty that they had formed for John the Baptist. Remember, his ministry, his ministry was truly one marked by and empowered by God. Lives were being changed through what he was doing, or more correctly, by what God was doing through him. And it was, it was a, totally, a, a totally natural thing to find a person being, being used by God and people latching onto them and following them. Let me ask you, how many of you remember the person that led you to Jesus? How many people remember that person who sat and spoke to you about the gospel and at that point you were converted? Most of us do. How do you think of that person? How do you look at, at that person? Most of us think of that person and, and hold that person at least with some revere in our mind. We, we, we've got that person in a special place in our memories. How many of you listen to certain teachers or read from certain preachers and not from others? It's interesting because Paul, he dealt with this very same thing in the early church, at the church at Corinth. There was a division happening in the church because some of the believers followed in Paul or, or, or believed in what Paul was doing and some wanted to follow Apollo's teaching. But, but Paul deals with, with it like this. He says, what, after all, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. You know, we, we, we can find the same thing happening, and it's very prevalent in our church today. Very prevalent in, 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 in what's happening in the, 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 cultural, uh, uh, the culture of religion that we have happening today. Uh, two, two prominent writers, two prominent pastors, polar opposites in, in many cases. John MacArthur's on one end, and then you have Rick Warren. Now some people will take John MacArthur and they'll read everything John MacArthur puts out. They'll, they'll listen to his messages and they'll take the things that he says for gospel truth, but they look at the other end of the spectrum and they think less and probably don't want much to do with the things that Rick Warren writes. And, 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 and then there's these people that follow Rick Warren and, and they read the things that he writes and, and they don't often have anything to do with the things that John MacArthur writes. You see, because they're placing their loyalty in something that they've seen happen and been taught in a man. And, and so they've seen God use this man to work in their lives, and so they automatically develop a prejudice, possibly a prejudice based on the teachings of that particular teacher. And they develop this prejudice based on, on what God has done through this teacher, and they begin to ignore 
the other works that God's doing around the world from different teachers. The reality is, and I don't say this, I, I say this with the utmost humility, the reality is, is that as you sit and listen to me teach, if God begins to use me, which my prayer is that He has already begun to do this, if God begins to use me in your life to transform your life, to bring you closer to Him, to, 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 to move you through the process that He's working in sanctification, if He begins to use me in that way, the chances are you'll develop some sense of loyalty to me. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I think ultimately even Paul called his followers to follow him, but the point was not to follow him to follow him. But he said to follow him as he follows Christ. And so I stand here before you ultimately knowing that this might have been one of the issues that the, 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 the disciples of John the Baptist had. And I stand before you knowing that this was a problem in the early church. And I stand before you knowing that this is a problem in our church today. And I stand before you saying this with Paul and with John the Baptist. Don't follow me to follow me. But follow me only as I exalt Christ and only as I follow Christ. Because otherwise you're following a man that has nothing in, in, in and of himself to offer you. Remember, we can't do anything or we don't have anything to offer apart from what God is doing through us and in us. I would challenge you to accept a person's teaching only as it agrees with God's word and it exalts Christ above everyone else. If it ever becomes anything other than those things, if I ever teach you anything that doesn't agree with Scripture or challenges the very notions that Scripture, uh, the very principles that Scripture puts out, I would say challenge me on it, correct me on it, show me the truth. But I would also say, that if I lead you to exalt Christ, if I lead you in, in, in the way of biblical principle, if I teach you the truth of Scripture, then I would call you to submit to it and follow me as I follow Christ. So here, and this is what John the Baptist is about to do with his disciples. He's about to tell his disciples, hey, what you're dealing with, the, the conflict that you have going on is an incorrect, it, it, it's an, based on an incorrect perspective. They're struggling. And, and, and he answers them. He doesn't answer them in some coddling way. He doesn't answer them in some uh, uh, indirect way, but deals with them and starts with them right where they are at, right where they begin at. You know, their perspectives have been challenged. Their foundations are being rocked. Because at some point along the way, their focus had changed and it had become about the success of their ministry, the, the physical success in their ministry. And, and, and possibly that you're just seeing the light of some of the sin that's still in their lives or, or, or some of the sin that's still in their lives is being brought to light. But the reality is, is that John corrects them. He sees the flaw in their thinking and helps them to see it rightly, as a good leader should. John 
testified to Jesus. And, and that's where he starts because that's where he start, where they started. Look again, as they come to John, in verse, uh, in, in verse 26, they come to John, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. They, they start in this conflict or in this conversation with John based on Jesus and, and the fact that John testified about him. So he comes back to that very point and he says... You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. Remember that John's testimony about Jesus has always been that he is to be exalted, and John tries to remove himself from the picture. Remember what he said. He said ultimately that he was not. Uh, even worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. He said that the one who would come after him would baptize, or I'm sorry, he said that he would baptize with water, but that the one that would come after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John testified and pointed to Jesus directly and said twice that we know of that this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. In every case, John is exalting and testifying to Jesus. You can't look at John the Baptist and not see Jesus. You can't look to Scripture and try to study John the Baptist without studying Jesus. Because in everything he did, he sought to exalt Jesus. As he called people to repentance, as he called them to be baptized, he was calling them back to a right relationship with their Lord, with the God who had entered into the covenant with them to begin with. He called them back into this right relationship, calling and saying constantly that, he was the voice of one calling in the, in the desert and that, the, that, that there was one coming after him that would set things right. You can't look to John the Baptist and not see Jesus. And you see, John wanted his followers to know that he was nothing more than a messenger. Just as Paul said, he was nothing more than one who planted seeds. And Apollos was nothing more than one who, who watered the seeds. John wanted his followers to know that he had a role to play, but that it was not that of the Messiah. John was being sent beforehand to bring attention to the Christ, but he was not the Christ. And then he begins to use this illustration. He says that Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm just the groomsman that goes ahead and calls out ahead of him. John used that illustration from marriage, and he talks about that, that the joy uh, of the where he talked about the coming of the bridegroom, and ultimately in a Jewish wedding, the, the bridegroom would be preceded by the groomsmen coming in and calling out and letting people know that, that, that the groom was coming, that, that, that he was on his way, and he would come in announcing the arrival of the groom. And then the groom would come in, and, and the, groom, the groomsman didn't come up and take the groom's place. He didn't come up and take the bride. He didn't come and try to, to weasel his way in. He, come in. he comes in and he announces the arrival of the groom, ultimately, so that people know he's coming. And the groom comes in and takes his place by the bride, ultimately picturing what Jesus is doing in his role before the coming of the Christ. Jesus has come to take his bride to church. Jesus has come to, to begin this work and build this church... <laughs> And John is coming to let people know that the groom is on his way. John is, John is, his joy is full because no groomsman is happy when the wedding falls apart. No groomsman comes to the wedding and stands by the groom and feels good about the, about the wedding failing. 
His joy was complete because what he saw happening was Jesus stepping up to take his rightful place as the groom, and he, as the announcer or as the groomsman, found his joy complete because he saw Jesus' ministry taking off and succeeding and God's work continuing in the world and the redemption of mankind being worked. And so his joy was complete because he knew that he had fulfilled and, and that God's work in him had fulfilled this role. For him to be jealous of Jesus' success wouldn't have only been counterproductive, but it would have been sin. If he had tried to exalt himself or draw people's attention away from the true Messiah, he would have been serving his own selfish, selfish interest. But because he accepted or, or trusted in God's word to him, because he, he followed obediently this mission that he'd been given, John's joy was fulfilled. Not by the number of people that followed him, but to see the Messiah coming after him. And the transition of the people to the Messiah. You see, he says, I must become less. I must shrink. I must be moved out of the way. People must quit seeking me. They must go to the Messiah. You see, because what John had, what John could do, he'd been giving. But what, had, what Jesus had was because he was from God. John, John had been sent by God for sure. But he didn't have God's power. He didn't have all authority. He, didn't, he hadn't come from heaven to earth and brought with him all truth. John had been given a mission. A mission. He had been given a role to play. He'd been given a message to share. The difference was that Jesus came with all authority. He came from heaven with all truth. Not, not just a message that had been given to him, although in a sense it was. Jesus was the credible witness. Recently in a, in a class I took, one of my last English classes, um, one, of the, one of the focal things that they wanted us to learn was to ensure that we, that, that, that we check the credibility of our sources as we prepare papers and as we write. And most of us know this. It's kind of a subconscious thing. I mean, how much trust do you offer to somebody you have no idea who they are? I, and ultimately, as you think about our culture and, and how much information, how, how much information is really available out there. I mean, who needs a college education? You got Google. You can go to Google and you can type in a question and you can know anything you want to know. What's pi? Google. I can tell you. What um, what happened in 1964 on the day of March 21st? Google can tell you. What what is the what 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 are the basic parts of a sentence? Type it in Google. See, we've got all kinds of information out there. There's all kinds of places that we can drum up answers because there's all kinds of answers. But the question is, is how credible, how, how much weight do we lend each of these answers? How much weight or trust do we place in these sources? How credible are our witnesses? John is telling us that Jesus is the most credible witness, that there's nothing that takes away from him, that nothing can override him. He is over all. He has all authority. He's brought with him truth because he came from heaven where truth exists and brought it to earth. And there's nothing that can take that away. There was no one better suited to share the truth than the one that knew it personally 
and, and with whom that truth originated. Jesus had all of that. John had given, been given a portion, but it belonged to Jesus. John can point the way, but Jesus is the way. You see, John, he, he couldn't save anyone. He could, not point, he, he, he could only point the way. It is by Jesus and Jesus alone that we have hope of forgiveness of sin. It is by Jesus and Jesus alone that we can find shelter from God's wrath. There is nothing you or I have to offer that provides a lasting hope or shelter from the storm. You see, the one thing that you're guaranteed to bring into another person's life is the problems that you carry with you because of you being a human and being sinful. In this fallen world that we live in, in and of ourselves, we really have nothing to offer one another but our problems. Sure, we can temporarily fix things. Sure, we can give temporary answers. But in and of ourselves, the one thing we're guaranteed to give someone as we come into their life and as we walk together in life it's the problems that come with being a human. But in Jesus, there's something different. As, and, and as God works in you and works through you, there's something much different. But it starts with Jesus. Look back again at that last verse I read in verse 36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You see, life starts with Jesus. And that's why John needed to make sure that his disciples understood that I am nothing. I need to, I need to, to shrink away. I need to, to be less. He needs to be more because Jesus is the one that needs to be exalted. Jesus is the one that brings change and brings life. It's through Jesus and faith in Jesus that we come into this place that we are given forgiveness and that we're given eternal life, that, we're, that, 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 that God can even look down on us and regenerate us. It's because of Jesus that the gospel exists. And so, who else should be exalted? Who else should we point people to? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see, Jesus, he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Jesus is the one to be exalted. And John was trying to get his disciples to see that. And that's the main point that I want you to take away from this. That as we step out into the public eye, as we live in our social life, as we live in our private life, as we live in our home life when no one's looking, as we live in our work life when we're around our, our employees or employers and, and, and around customers and around people that we connect with on a daily basis, it's not, to, to, it, it's not for us to stand up and make ourselves look worthy or make ourselves look honorable honorable, but it's always for us to exalt Jesus. That's our call, is to exalt Jesus, to point people to Jesus so that they see Him, so that He draws them unto Himself. We just point the way. Let me give you a couple of illustrations, and, and, and I'll close out with these. The classic work, um, The Master's Indwelling by Andrew Murray, he writes this, 
When a man is giving a lecture, he often uses a long pointer to indicate places on a map or a chart. Do people look at that pointer? No, that only helps to show them the place on the map, and they do not think of it. It might even be a fine goal, but the pointer cannot satisfy. They want to see what the pointer points at. We need to be a pointer. We need to be a pointer in the hand of our God. We need to be a pointer pointing to Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus is the only one that satisfies. William Carey, and this was written about William Carey, when Alexander Duff was home on furlough from India in 1834, he often visited missionary statesman William Carey. On his last visit before Carey died, Duff spent much of his time talking about Carey's work. Finally, Carey seemed to tire of it and whispered, pray. After Duff prayed, he arose to leave the room, but Carey called him to return to his side. And he says this, Mr. Duff, he said graciously, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey, but speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. May it be that we too call attention to Jesus in our life, in all that we do. The one, who, the one who God was all, is already highly exalted, or, or who He has already highly exalted. It's His name that needs to be remembered, not ours. An illustration about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. After a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the, the audience gave conductor Arturo Toscini, Toscanini and the orchestra a prolonged ovation. They clapped and they clapped and they clapped. And, and Toscani, filled with emotion, turned to his musicians and whispered this. He says, I am nothing. You are nothing. Then in almost adoring tones, Toscanini said, but Beethoven is everything. Let me remind you of the words that Paul spoke about himself and Apollos. I just watered this. I just planted the seed. He just watered the seed. But God made it grow. The planter is, and, and, and the waterer are nothing but only God who brings growth. And so I say this to you now. I am nothing. You are nothing. Jesus is everything. I'm not trying to be mean or confrontational. But we need to find the heart, that, and we need to have the heart. Where does this come from? You know, the amazing thing is, and ultimately this wasn't meant to be the point of this message, as I said, but the amazing thing is that it goes right back to the beginning of where we started at. His disciples spent time with him, or, or he spent time with his disciples. And where are we going to find this heart? Where are we going to find this transformation? Where are we going to come to this place where we are changed and, and shaped like John the Baptist, where we understand that I am nothing, I am not worthy to be exalted, I am not worthy to be, to, to be the honor of people's praise, but only Jesus. I think it only comes in time with Jesus as He shapes us and changes us and makes us who He's created us to be. You see, God chose Paul. He assigned Paul this mission. And Paul understood that it was just a role to play, important role to play, but God was doing the work. He was just a tool. John the Baptist understood he had this role to play. He had this mission to do, but he understood that he was only a tool. 
You see, just as that orchestra could not have played the music, just as, just as they, could, they, they, they could have done all they wanted to do, but they wouldn't have received the glory and the fame had Beethoven never written that Ninth Symphony, we, 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 we can't do anything that Jesus isn't already working in us and changing us and making us able to do. And so I call you now to exalt Jesus. But I really believe before that will begin to happen, you're going to have to spend some time with Him. And so I call you to spend time with Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank You for Jesus. I thank You for loving us enough, in spite of who we are, in spite of our sins, in spite of the, the difficulties of life, in spite of the things that we do that dishonor You and discredit You. You loved us enough, and in, in our sin, You sent Your Son. Jesus, I thank you that in the midst of who we were, you came and you died. And you gave your life so that we could have it. I thank you, Jesus, for, for changing us and making us new and not leaving us the same. I, I pray. I pray that as we've looked at this and, and seen this example of the gospel, the, the truth of the gospel at work in a man's life, that we'll crave it as well. And, 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 and we'll chase after it and we'll, we'll seek you and, and, and we'll, 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 we'll spend time with you and we'll, we'll love you and obey you. I, I pray, God, that you will work in us in the places where each of us need work. And I pray that you'll put that pressure where that pressure needs to be placed. And, and God, I pray that we'll respond in faith, that, that we'll respond in an active faith and we'll get up and obey. I pray, God, that you'll give us strength and courage. I pray that you will enable us, empower us to exalt Jesus so that as we do it, you can bring, you can bring growth, you can bring life, you can, can redeem, and, and, you, and you can, can work in the way that you, that you so desire to work. Father, I know that ultimately... You don't need me. I know that ultimately you could come down here yourself and you could bring the truth. But ultimately, I know for whatever reason, this is the way you've decided to do it. This is the way that you've decreed that you're going to work. And I pray that as this extension of, of your church, of your universal church, as, as this local congregation begins to step out, Father, that we won't in any way seek to exalt ourselves, but that we will in all things exalt your Son, Jesus. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.